Our reading today is from Titus 3, um, verses 1 to 7, on page 1199 in the Church Bibles. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God, of God our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Thanks very much, Jenna. Um, firstly, I'd just like to add my welcome to Jill's. My name is Pete Thompson, the third Pete of the day, um, and I'm a member of the church congregation here at Inspire St. James. Um, before we dive into the passage and see what it's saying to us today, Let me lead us in a prayer. Father God, praise you for the power of your word, for its power to convict and change us. Pray that you would give me wisdom now um, as I try and explain this passage and give us all soft hearts so that we would be receptive to it. Amen. Summer resolutions. We've all heard about New Year's resolutions, haven't we? But in this world of self-improvement, Why would people wait until January to try and bring about change in their lives where they can try and do it now? Those resolutions, they might be to try and keep in touch with friends better, to read more books. But by this stage of summer, if you're anything like me, you'll be thinking how much there still is to do to fulfill those resolutions. You might have messaged a fair few of your friends to try and meet up but you're all so busy, you're away over the summer, the next time you can all meet up is sometime in October. And your reading list, rather than shrinking, has grown to such startling proportions that you just can't face starting. Summer resolutions for 2018, incomplete. And do we ever get that same feeling in the Christian life? If we're Christians here today, do we get that feeling where we want to change to become more godly, but we just don't see that happening in our lives? Do we see ourselves falling into the same sins again and again? Over the last few weeks, we've been going through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus, a church leader on Crete. And again and again, we've seen the command to live godly, distinctive lives. But as I'm sure many of you will have experienced, if we're a Christian, living out a godly, distinctive life in a godless world can be very tough. Maybe we're here and our boss is giving us a hard time for being a Christian. They give us the odd snide comment when we talk about going to church and talk about our faith at work. We can be tempted to slag them off to our other colleagues, 
to act begrudgingly towards them when they tell us to do something? What's going to keep us behaving in a godly way towards them? Maybe we're here and sadly our parents aren't Christians. They can't understand why we want to give so much money to the church. They can't understand why we want to bring up their grandchildren to know Jesus. And with family, it's so easy to just snap at them, isn't it? To make some cutting comment. What's going to stop us doing that? What's going to keep us living a godly life towards them? This is a world of temptations, a world that makes it difficult for us to experience godly change. What is going to help to live, help us to live a distinctive, godly life? And our answer is found in coming back to the gospel of grace. It is found in reminding ourselves of the new life that we've been given as Christians. This will be what enables us to change, to become more godly. And this will be what enables us to keep going as we seek to live godly lives now in the godless world in which we live. So let's now turn to Titus chapter 3 and see where we get that from the passage. And there are three particular points that I want to draw out of this passage this afternoon. And the first is the good life. The good life. So the good life that we're called to lead. Um, Let's have a look down at verses 1 and 2 of the passage. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do what is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. In the wake of the EU referendum, a number of British newspapers spoke of the idea of a Brexitus, of British people leaving the country to seek a new life abroad. Take the example of Cliff James, who's interviewed by The Independent. He said, It felt like the country had returned to the dark ages of ignorance and hatred. I thought about staying and trying to fight this tide, but it felt overwhelming. I am leaving. Now, I'm not saying Cliff was right. He's taking a pretty extreme view of Brexiteers here. But we can see the logic of his decision. Cliff saw the country around him and was appalled and so retreated from it. And it must have been tempting for the Christians on Crete at this time and for us now to think along similar lines, to be appalled at the non-Christian world and to retreat away into a holy huddle of believers, to not want to engage with non-Christians. But Paul He's saying in these first couple of verses, no, roll up your sleeves and get stuck in. So how are we to engage with the world? Well, the first element is to be subject to rulers and authorities. But there's a great what if behind that call, isn't there? What if the authority orders me to do something that goes against God's commands? What do I do then? I think sometimes we can be so quick to go to the what-ifs that we forget to listen to the commands. Let's have a look down at verse 1 again. 
remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do what is good. Here's an attitude that every Christian should take. We should obey our earthly masters. In a world that mistrusts authority, where people only obey those laws that are enforced, where people get away with what they can, it can be easy for Christians to just go with the flow. But Paul tells Titus, teach your congregation to be different. This should be part of what makes us stand out from the crowd. Obey all authorities. Toe the line. And of course, the New Testament does answer those what-ifs and teaches that we shouldn't submit to authority, that it is contradiction with God's word. So what are the other elements of the good life that Paul writes off here? Let's look back at the end of verse 1. Remind the people to be always ready to do what is good. The Christian is to live as a good citizen, always ready to do what is good, ready in every situation to live according to God's commands. And then moving on to verse 2. Remind the people to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. We are to guard our tongues, not to speak ill of people behind their back, not to quarrel. And Paul commends a gentleness, a humility towards others. What are we known for as Christians? What are we known for? Is it? this life of obedience, of wholesome talk, of being considerate and gentle? Or are we just known for the odd one-off gesture, the odd one-off invite to an evangelistic event, the odd indication that there's something different that runs our life? Instead, let's think of what an amazing picture it would be if we were to all live in, in the way that Paul describes here, what an attractive picture of the gospel it would be. So rather than being hard to manage, needing lots of supervision from a line manager, we are to be obedient. Rather than driving at 85 miles an hour on the motorway, even though there's no one watching, we are to stick to the speed limit. Rather than being careless with our talk and our language, casually sharing gossip, with our friends, or swearing when someone cuts us up on the drive to work, we are to use our speech carefully, considerately. Rather than continuing an argument with someone, even if we feel that we're right, we are to be peaceable, not carrying on for the sake of winning. Rather than being arrogant, we are to be humble and gentle. We are to be ready to do every good work. But at this stage, we're still left with that gaping question. How are, we gonna able to, how are we able to live this life? How are we able to live up to these standards? How are we able to change so that we can live godly lives like these? But to answer that question, Paul first has to explain the change that we have undergone, for which he needs to look at our past life our past life. So that's our second point. Let's have a look down at verse 3. 
At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Last year, I got married to Elisa, who some of you might know. And for the wedding, um, Elisa's mum was in charge of the decorations. Um, thankfully for everyone involved, I was to have nothing to do with them. Um, anyway, one of Elisa's mum's particular ideas was having a slideshow running during the dinner, showing photos of Elisa and I during our childhood. I wasn't desperately keen on this idea. Um, I was hardly the most photogenic child. Um, but, you know, eventually I gave in. You know, got to keep the mother-in-law on side, all, all these things. Um, anyway, needless to say, in some of the photos, I wasn't looking at my best. Um, when I was growing up, I had braces, glasses, you know, you get the picture. Um, so all the guests at the wedding, they got a sense of what I had been like, of how little I had cared about my appearance, of how I once was. And Paul, in this verse, he's inviting us to do the same thing, to look at our past lives, to look at what we once were like before we became a Christian. And Paul doesn't mince his words here as he talks about what believers were and are like without Jesus. Before, before they became followers of Jesus, they were fools. And in the Bible, a fool is not just a stupid person. No, Psalm 14, verse 1 says, A fool is someone who says in his heart, there is no God. A fool is someone who rejects God, who lives life like he's not there. And this rejection of God, it affects our whole lives. Let's have a look down at verse 3 again. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So how does this all work? Well, we're in a downward spiral. Through our own disobedient choices, we've created patterns of personal behavior that enslave us actions that our sinful desires just keep us keep making keep us with which we keep doing we might think i'm not a slave to my passions but think about the decisions you make you don't need to stay caught up to the latest reality tv show you don't need to spend hours a day scrolling through facebook you don't need to have a house full of Kathkiston. But we do. Our sinful desires, be they to fit in, to keep up with the crowd, they enslave us. At the same time, we've helped create a culture that deceives us, that promises us much, but delivers little. A world that says, once you have that thing, be that a certain relationship, a certain bank balance, a certain career, then I'll be happy. But we know that's a lie. Getting those things just leaves us wanting more. 
And because our relationship with God is a mess, because we have rejected him, our relationships with one another are a mess too. We show malice and envy. Malice, we wish bad things on others. Envy, we are spiteful when others receive good things. I'm sure we can think for ourselves of times when we've shown those attitudes towards others. This is a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? Our rejection of God affects the whole of our lives. And we want to think that isn't us, don't we? But Paul is talking about us, about you and about me. Without Jesus, this is what we were and are like. Fools, disobedient, enslaved to our desires. If we would call ourselves a Christian, then we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves and what our lives were like before we turned to follow Jesus. To see the depths of our sin. And it, and it is only as we do that, as we realise how wretched our past lives were, that we can really grasp the new life that Jesus has given us. And it is only if we grasp the sin of our past lives that we can truly live the good lives that God has called us to, to lead. Back in 1972, 45 Uruguayan rugby players were making a routine flight across the Andes to Chile. But while crossing the mountains, the co-pilot mistook the readings in the cockpit and descended down to what he thought was the airport, but was in fact the middle of the Andes Mountains. The plane struck a cliff, the fuselage sheared off and careered down a steep slope like a sledge. A quarter of the passengers died on impact. The survivors hoped that rescuers would come, but the plane was invisible in the middle of the snow. The survivor the survivors located some batteries from the wreckage and got the radio to work, only to have their hopes dashed as they heard the crackled message that the search had been called off. They were left with no hope. The cold was eating away at their bodies. It seemed a matter of time before they would die. But somehow two of the rugby players, Roberto Canessa, and Nando Palado trekked 59 kilometers over 10 days. They met a Chilean farmer who alerted the authorities and 16 of the passengers eventually made it out alive. Imagine how they would have felt when they made it back to see their friends and family. They felt like they had no right to be alive. They had stared death in the face They'd been a complete mess. And when you hear of what they did afterwards, you see what a difference that experience of being down so low, what a difference that made. Take Canessa. He became a paediatric cardiologist, bringing back young children from the brink of death. Other players, they lived lives of public service. They gave their lives to others. And it's the same for us too. 
If we're here and we'd call ourselves a Christian, then we too were utterly helpless. We too have stared death in the face. And just as that spurred the Uruguayan rugby players to action as they realised how fortunate they were to have been saved, so it should for us too. It should spur us to live the godly lives that Paul has been describing here. And it is only by remembering the depth of our sin, of what our lives were like when we rejected God, that we will be truly humbled as we realise that our position now as God's children is not down to our own actions. Only then will any pride and thinking that we are a good Christian be totally rid of. And if we're here and we're not a Christian, then I guess this past life is still our life now. We are rejecting God. We need to be freed from the desires which enslave us. But as we look at the final point, we'll see how God has done that through Jesus if we choose to trust in him. So Paul doesn't end his explanation there. He hasn't finished explaining how and why we can live the good life. The answer is ultimately found in the new life that God has given us. So that's our third point from the passage, the new life, the new life. Let's have a look down at verse four. But then the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That foolishness, that rejection of God, it deserved condemnation, judgment and death. There was nothing about us that made us worthy of God's salvation. Do you ever make decisions by weighing up the pros and the cons? Might write the pros on one side and the cons on the other. Imagine that God did that when trying to work out whether to save us. What would we have on the con side? We'd have foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hated, hating. What would we have on the pro side? Nothing. It's completely blank. There's absolutely nothing there. There is no reason why God should save us. And this goes against the way that the world thinks about love. We are ingrained into thinking that we love someone because they are lovable. When guy meets girl, when he says he, he loves her, why does he say that? He says that because of her beautiful smile, because of her elegance, because she makes him laugh. Say, instead of those characteristics, she was forever in a bad mood, she never smiled at him, and she never replied to his messages. If that were the case, he'd have no reason to say, I love you. Those characteristics would make her unlovable. But when it says the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, 
It means that God loved us, despite there being no reason for him to love us. Let's have a look down at verse 4 again. But then the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That word righteous, that's referring to anything that God would see as good, anything that would give us a right standing with him. But there's none of that, nothing that would make us worthy of saving. It's all about God and his mercy. Our salvation is all about the work of God the Father. That love and kindness of God, we know that that had existed throughout time. But in sending his son to die for us, it reached a climax. He sent his one and only son, the most precious thing to him, to live on earth and face rejection and pain as a criminal. That's where we see God's love and kindness most perfectly revealed. So how did he save us? Well, God the Father sends God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that is God himself, came to dwell in us. And what does the Spirit do to us? Well, it gives us rebirth and renewal. So rebirth, that's a total restart. We were dead in our sin, and we are reborn. We're given a new life and renewal. We are given a totally new nature. And when we see the fruits of this new life, we are struck once again by the extent of God's kindness and love for us. Let's have a look down at the second half of verse 5 again. He saved us though through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So there are two big results from the new life that we've been given. The first is that we have been justified. So Paul is talking using the language of the law court. We are before the court with God as our judge. The charge, that we are rebels who have rejected God. We hear the evidence. We're foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious. But we hear the verdict, not guilty. Instead, Jesus is condemned in our place. We are justified because Jesus takes the guilty verdict and condemnation that we deserve. And our second big result of the new life that we've received is this means that we will go to be with Jesus in glory. Just as he took the pain we deserved, we can share with the glory that should all have been his. So we will be heirs. We will share in the inheritance of ruling this world and living eternally. Left to ourselves, our future was eternal death. But in Christ, it is eternal life. I think we need to let these truths sink in. If we're here and we call ourselves a Christian, it is when we realise the transformation that we have undergone, the total new life 
that we've been given by the Spirit, that will lead us to live lives devoted to doing what is good. Since as these truths sink in, they should turn our hearts to praise. Praise as we thank the Lord for his mercy in bringing us out of the depths of our past lives, back into a right relationship with him. Praise as we see the generosity of him pouring out his spirit to give us new life. And praise as we realise that this transformation is all down to him. Take those Uruguayan rugby players. Many of them were Christian believers. They thank God for saving them from freezing to death. And it was out of praise to him for saving them that they sought to live good lives in response. So in the same way, that attitude of praise for God should be reflected in our lives as we seek to live in a way that honours him by doing good, to being godly citizens. So when our boss is giving us a hard time for being a Christian, when we're tempted to ignore his instructions, we can look to the new life given to us in Jesus. And that should make us thank God for all that he has done for us. So we seek to live obedient lives in response. So we don't get involved when others are slagging him off. We seek, to a good, we seek to do a good job for him. And when we're tempted to flip out at our non-Christian parents, again, we can remember the new life that we've been given. That mercy that, that God showed us in sending Jesus, that will help us to show mercy in turn to our parents. So if we're finding that we're not becoming more godly, then our response shouldn't be to look for something in ourselves. There's no wisdom in trying harder to be obedient. We've seen how naturally we are disobedient. Instead, we need to look to the kindness and love of God the Father, as seen through him sending his Son and sending his Spirit to remind ourselves of God's mercy and grace. And if we're here and we wouldn't call ourselves a Christian, then this is an invitation for us to accept the new life that Paul talks about here, to leave aside the past life of a rejection of God and say yes to a right relationship with him. We've seen that this is nothing about us. It's all about what God has done, done for us. All we, need, all we need to do is to accept the sins of our past life, ask for forgiveness, and trust in him. So there we have it. As Christians, we're called to live the good life in the world now, a life devoted to doing what is good, to being obedient, considerate, and gentle. But how can we change to live that good life? How can we live up to those standards? It's through looking at what God has done for us, the mercy and grace he has shown to us. It is, it is as we look at the life that we led before we became Christians that we are humbled. It is as we look at the new life that God has given us 
through his mercy and grace, that our hearts turn to praise and our lives to obedience. So let's keep reminding each other of that gospel of grace so that we might live the good lives that we have been called to live. Let me pray. Father God, we do praise you so much for bringing us out of our sin. For we praise you so much for your mercy in sending your spirit and in sending your son that we could have new life. Pray that as we remember those truths, that we would live lives devoted to doing what is good. Amen.